Well, good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here. I'm the life group pastor. So if you were thinking, how do I get in a life group? We should talk after. We are on the fourth week of our Ask series. And it is a different format than our typical setup here at New Life Church. Typically, we choose a book of the Bible and we walk through it verse by verse and learn what the scripture is, is teaching us and how we can apply it to our lives. Uh, with this series, this, um, this question and a- answer series, we threw a question out to the Facebook. We said, what questions would you like to ask the church? And from those responses, we put together five, a five-week series with five real questions from five real people. There were a couple that came together, um, so more than five people, but we had five real questions. So typically we'd walk through a book, but with this series we have a question, then we run to the book. We run to the Bible to try to answer those questions. And my goal this morning is to answer one of these questions, hopefully maybe for someone that's sitting here that has the, the same question as we're about to ask, and answer in a way that is helpful and I hope beneficial to the asker of the question, and also to provide a model for all of you that may receive a similar query from a friend, someone you may know that may ask a question that is similar to the one we're going to hear this morning. My hope is that the way we model it this morning would help you when you answer it as well. So this morning, our question is, why do people who claim to be Christians but don't act like it insist on forcing their beliefs on others? So we, we, got a, we got assigned questions before we started uh, the series, and some pastors got this one, and I got, and I, I got this one. And have you ever had that feeling? You're, you're in a conversation, you're about to hear, an, maybe you're debating with a friend, and, or maybe an enemy, or a coworker, or whatever, and you're hearing their arguments, and you're sitting there with just confidence. I know the answers, I have, I got it all figured out, so whenever, as soon as they open their mouth and give me the question, I got the answer, it's going to be fine. And then they, answer, they, they open their mouth and the question they ask just nails an issue and goes right to the heart of something and deflates you because you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know why. That's this question for me. This question is not limited to the oddballs, uh, the oddballs that call themselves Christians or the whack jobs or the embarrassments or all those people that you put in your mind when you read this question and thought, yeah, why do those crazy people do that? It's not me. This question's not for me. Yes, this question is for you. And it is for me. And, we, and you and I need to answer this question. Um, frankly, it's deflating And I want to ask the same question. Why do people who claim to be Christians but don't act like it insist on forcing their beliefs on others? The asker of this question knows something we forget. Christians ought to act in a way distinct from those who are not Christians. Christian Christian means little Christ. And if we are examples of Christ, the God-man, the God-man who interjected himself into broken humanity, there must indeed be a way of acting for us that is distinct from the rest of humanity. Honestly, sadly, there are many examples where this question is is just completely legitimate and we need to simply and humbly apologize. There are many times when Christians don't act like Christ. 
I apologize for hypocrisy. For the church globally, historically, for Christians individually, we have been offensive and our character has not matched the Jesus we follow. We've been hypocrites and done the things we know and preach to be sin. We downplay sin and hypocrisy in others, especially if we think they're one of our leaders or on our team. Oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. We have joined the mocking culture and the outrage culture of the world. Just look at our Facebook feeds. In addition, there are many times Christians resort to force. Forcing requires a focus on exertion of power. I apologize for our preoccupation with power sometimes. We as a church globally and as Christians individually, we have been forceful and firm rather than loving and winsome. We have cared more about political wins than gospel proclamation. We have wielded political power as a means of Christian propagation. And historically, if you look in the past, like anyone that would be asking this question would look in the past, in the past we have forced conversion under threat of death. Just look at the Crusades. We've done stuff like this. We have yelled truth without grace or truth without attempting relationship. We have spoken with no obvious love for those with whom we disagree. Can we just sit in that for a moment? Let's not defend our poor, disparate behavior. Let's acknowledge that this question is real. This is a real question. This question could have been asked with me in mind. And I'm sure if you're honest with yourself, it could have been asked with you in mind as well. And as forgiven people, we need to be ready to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I think that is the right foot with which to start walking into the question. I think that's how you start. I think that's how we start. Is an apology. Let's continue to dig into this question. As I read it, there are two significant parts, two key concerns in the, in the question. Christians who don't act like Christians, otherwise known as hypocrisy, and Christians forcing their belief on others or beliefs. Let's look at each of them in turn. First, why are there Christians who don't act like Christians? Little Christs. Those who have the hope of Christ indeed have a distinct way of walking from the rest of the world. But sometimes we stumble when we walk in our old paths. In First Peter, Peter addresses the exiled Christians who are all over the known world and reminds them that the church ought to line up, the way we act ought to line up with our hope of Christ. He addresses these Christians in First Peter. These, these Christians had been put everywhere around the Roman Empire. And in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Peter writes this letter to these Christians and says, Hey, wake up. You may be scattered all over the known world, but you are Christians and we walk differently. He says, set your mind on the grace, on the hope of Jesus. We know how important Christ is for our salvation, but we forget that the gospel has implications for all of life. Not just life after death, all of life. We forget that the the implications of the gospel are not solely significant for the day we convert and the day we die. The gospel is applicable to every day of our lives. We need to sober up and set our hope, our expectation, our longing on the grace of Jesus. I need that today. I need that yesterday. I need that tomorrow. And I will need that every day until I see my hope, Jesus. Remind yourself of grace. Set your hope on Jesus. Keep the good news of the gospel in front of you. Nothing is more transforming than keeping the good news shining into all aspects of your life. The Holy Spirit can do some great work on us when we keep the truth in front of us, in front of our faces. This book, the Bible, is about Jesus. Open it and hear about him and from him and set your hope and expectation on him. This church is about Jesus. Show up and get connected to these people Help each other remember our hope is connected to Jesus. Put yourself into a pocket of community. I'm the life group guy, right? Put yourself into a pocket of community that is together fixing their hope on Jesus. Don't don't walk alone. Peter also says, be obedient children, not conformed to our passions. Peter says, follow your father. Follow your papa. This is how Christians walk. They walk with their daddy. And why does he need to remind us of this? Because the passions of your former ignorance, of my former ignorance, are always sitting there ready to distract us. What is your former passion? What is that sin that you slip into when life is difficult and stressful? What is that that sin that you were so good at and so comfortable with? for so much of your life that even though you are now walking with Jesus, it still distracts, it still pulls your vision away, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. What is that sin? Are you one that is prone to angry outbursts when you're frustrated or when life is hard? Or the one who will passively scuttle a relationship? Perhaps a willingness to cheat at work is something from your former ignorance and the temptation keeps presenting itself and sometimes it's easy to just step to the other side. Perhaps you use pornography to numb your emotions or numb life because I just don't want to deal with it right now. Or perhaps gospel or gossip is a way to make you feel better about yourself. Perhaps pride comes into play and you see yourself as better than everyone else around you. Or when you lose control, worry takes over. Peter implores us to not be conformed to these passions, not be conformed to the old way. Do not stay in the old ruts. Pull out. Pull away from these previous affections. In fact, he reminds us that our conduct should be holy like our dad. If you keep falling back into your old passions, ask the community of Jesus to help. 
Ask your life group or someone in your life group. Ask them to walk with you or pray with you, pray for you. I know, I I know this is how God works out hypocrisy and sin in his church. Through interaction with him and interaction with his community. The Holy Spirit empowers us to partner with him in putting sin to death so that our life in Christ can shine through. I've seen it happen. I know it happens. And friends, please remember, though there is work, real, real hard work, putting sin to death, there is deep joy in killing sin. Don't hold on to that stuff. That, that thing that's in the back of your mind right now telling you, no, he's not talking about me. He's not talking about this thing. Just keep a grip on this. It makes life a little bit easier. Don't worry about it. He's not talking about that. Your personal passion often deceives you. That old affection often deceives you. It deceives you into thinking it would be better to hold on to it, better to fall back into that rut again because it's comfortable, it's easy. It's not that hard. It's not that big of a deal. In reality, it is malignant and a killer of joy, a stealer of joy. Nothing is better than having who you are more closely resemble your father. One commentator described the motivation saying, Christians should delight in imitating God, both because he is their father and because his moral excellence is inherently beautiful and desirable. To be like him is the best way to be. To be like him is the best way to be. There's life there. There's joy there. There's delight there. Sin is a liar and not helpful. So why is there sometimes a disparity between people's identity and their actions Amongst Christians, we forget what is true and we fall into our old passions. We fall into our old way of being. So yes, when we forget about the gospel, we, like the rest of the human race, stumble in our old paths and that is when we don't act like Christians, when we should show examples of Christ. And that's why we say, I'm sorry. We also forget about the nature of the gospel. And this is to the second part of the question. We forget about the nature of the gospel and we change our method from proclamation of news to forcing and wielding power. Unfortunately, I don't know, I don't know the particular definition of forcing that this question asker um, had in the back of their mind, but I, I will assume the softest option and I will work towards more egregious options. So on the softer side, we live in a pluralistic society, meaning many ideas and beliefs are in our society. There, we are not a people, we're not a, a country or a state or anything. We're not populated by people of a static opinion or belief. We have a bunch of opinions and a bunch of beliefs. Nor have we ever been a people of a static opinion or belief. Because of that diversity of thought, some find it offensive or even forceful when a person proclaims something as ultimately and finally and supremely true. As Christians, we have an overarching belief, our ultimate belief that Jesus, God, become man, died to save rebel sinners. And we believe it is the ultimate and most important truth, not just for us, not just for me, not just for you, but for all of reality, all of humanity, all of history. And I can't sway from that. So that if if that belief is to be spoken, and it ought to be, it should be spoken with grace and truth. 
Jesus himself proclaimed the distinct nature of salvation offered through him alone. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is through Jesus we are saved. It is through Jesus that is the way. And in him there is truth and in him there is life. And through him and only him do we get to the Father, Creator God. This is an astounding and overarching truth that affects all of reality. Not just the reality of Christians, but the reality of everyone. So if we know this truth, if we know where life is, we must proclaim it. New life is the name of our church. We know this truth. We must proclaim this truth that there is new life in Christ. This is the great cosmic front page of the newspaper of all history. Great news. I and we, we don't get to be obnoxious with this or rude. It's good news. You're not obnoxious and rude with good news. That doesn't even make sense. But I also must not blunt it. I also must not soften the contrast of its greatness to make it fit alongside all other ideas. It is something different. The one God, creator of the universe, has come into our world to save men and women like you and me who have rejected him. That's the best news. The best news. So for some, any proclamation of ultimate reality can be considered forcing. And that is something we, Christi- we as Christians cannot help. We have the best news. We must tell people the best news. In our pluralistic, relativistic world, any proclamation of something ultimate, something that applies to everyone, is often discouraged. That to their ears can sound forceful. This truth, Christ, may with some of the language of Scripture, that may smell to those who don't believe it. A negative reaction to the gospel is not true. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes it this way, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing as well. To one a fragrance from death to death. To other a fragrance from life to life. For some, when Christ is made known, they hear Christ and it stinks. They hate it. For others, it is the fragrance of life. Like sitting in the living room and smelling Thanksgiving dinner started. I'm going over there. This message brings in intense and opposite responses from different types of people. But my friends, let them stumble on the gospel. Let them stumble on Christ, on the good news, on the best news, but not on your delivery. Not on your tone, not on your posture. Not on the way you relate to them. Proclaim good news, but let your tone match the graciousness of the message you're proclaiming. As we've already mentioned in the fourth, the forcefulness of a Christian often exceeds just the offensiveness of an exclusive message. We are people that know that a saving king is coming, but we often lose our aim and our focus and jump to more forceful methods. And it comes down to the question, how will the kingdom come? We have our hope attached to Jesus, which is right and true, who will bring a better kingdom than the one in which we currently reside. But how will that come about? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait? 
God's plan in the waiting in this age, in this time, is the making of disciples through the church. Some of the last words Jesus spoke on earth was to lay out his plan for this age, the time we live in right now. In Matthew 28, before he ascended to heaven to to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, the one that finished things and did things right, he came and said to his disciples, the people who had been following him, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus basically says, I am the one in charge. Whether in heaven or on earth, I'm in charge. And here is what we are doing. We are making disciples. People who follow Jesus. And we are going to do that by baptizing them and teaching them all that I have taught you. And until this age is over, until this time is over and I return as king... That is the plan. And honestly, that takes a lot of work and patience and prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. And thank you, Jesus, for giving us the Holy Spirit to help us do this thing. It takes time to teach someone what Jesus said and how the gospel affects all of their life. It takes time for people to understand the detriment of their old passions and their old ruts and to help them walk in their new life. And, in, and rather than do that hard people work, the church often decides to play a different game. Force involves power. And here in our country, we really like to talk about rights. And I, I love that we have rights. I'm really thankful that we have rights. But often we start talking about, if I have a right, then I have power. And if I can exert to get my right fulfilled, that's a game worth playing. That's the milieu of what we live in. I will exert my power to bring my rights. That is the game most people play, but it's the wrong idea. It's the wrong posture. And the church, rather than engaging disciple-making, sometimes engages the game of exerting power. The ends we hope to accomplish seem good, Let's bring the kingdom here now. Let's start right here, right now. But that's not how the kingdom comes. That is not how the kingdom will arrive. Regardless, we take this and run with it. An egregious example from way back in the day are the Crusades. Armies, men in armor with swords and weapons for a bunch of reasons, but primarily to increase the amount of Christians and decrease the amount of everyone else, storm their way to Jerusalem to take back a city, forcing conversion along the way by the sword. That's not how the kingdom comes. It's not how the kingdom comes. Every time I see that as the mascot for like a Christian school, I go, no. Anything else. Bible thumpers. I don't care what you call yourselves. Just not crusaders. It's a bad idea. In our country, we're we're typically not doing that. In our country, because we have state-established rights, we are very prone to use that system to bring the kingdom. There are many smaller beliefs as far as importance, many smaller opinions that we have pushed while neglecting the gospel. I don't know what your view on tax structure or education or state funding or whatever other policy thing you have in your mind right now. 
and we effectively say, I'm going to bring my view of the kingdom to the here and now. I don't need to winsomely and patiently do discipleship. I can exert power. Come on, that's not, that's not how the kingdom comes. Sometimes we're prone to thinking that this nation was a God-glorifying kingdom back in the glory days. We just need to bring it back. My friends, there were no glory days in the past that just need to be reestablished. There will be a glory day when the king returns. The kingdom and the king is coming. And in the meantime, we are ambassadors of that kingdom until the king returns, until Jesus returns. Paul uses that language in 2 Corinthians. He says, and we read it before, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God in Christ reconciles sinners to himself. That means he is mending relationship and putting it back together the way it should be. And those who are reconciled have the privilege and honor of joining in that reconciling work with God himself. We have been saved by Christ and joined joined with Christ and reconciled with Christ and now are ambassadors of the good news, ambassadors of the kingdom that is coming, the good news of what Christ is doing in this world. God is making his appeal through us. That's crazy. God is making his appeal through us. We are the proclaimers of the good news. I heard it said this week that the gospel found you on the way to someone else. You have been changed and reconciled by the gospel and now you are an ambassador to proclaim the kingdom to someone else. The gospel does not terminate on you. We have been given a weighty yet wonderful responsibility as ambassadors. Practically, this this changes the way we walk. If we are ambassadors of the kingdom where relationships have been mended and put back together, there are practical ways we ought to live here and now as ambassadors. First, remember, ambassadors live differently. They proclaim the truth and the values of the kingdom they represent, but they do not crusade in their guest country. They show respect and care and patience, service and love. Secondly, while, while an ambassador is keenly aware of where they live, they do not forget that they are ambassadors of the kingdom. You don't have an ambassador to this country that all of a sudden forgets, oh, th- th- this is my home. I live here. I don't even, oh, another country. They don't, they don't forget who they represent. They don't forget their country. They don't forget their kingdom. They do not pretend to be citizens of their guest country. They do not soften the view of their sending country. We do not dumb down what our king says so it's more palatable, though we seek a winsome tone. Thirdly, remember that your worldview should be shaped by the gospel, not by all of the lesser allegiances or the lesser opinions you have. Your identity in Christ and your ambassadorship to the kingdom is far, far, far more important than what party is denoted on your voter registration card. 
far more important than your preferred tax structure, far, far more important than whatever policy thing you, you hold very highly, far more important than any opinion you have about something that's just not as important as the kingdom that is coming. Please don't forget that. Additionally, in the current days, it seems that social media is where we, we think we have a really good public voice. Honestly, if, if you can't use social media as a discipleship tool for the long and slow haul of, of showing someone who Jesus is and helping them understand all that he taught us, if you can't use it for that, don't use it. If you are all too prone to join in the outrage mob or jump into your old passions or that old rut of anger or mockery or derision, or you look for the gotcha moments for those with whom you disagree, please don't be on social media. Also, engage hospitality, not hostility. Be hospitable to those that don't know the kingdom. Be hospitable to those that don't know there is a king coming who is a suffering servant for us to to mend relationship with God and man. In in our Roman series, we talked about hospitality being the means by which we make strangers into friends and our ultimate hope would be that they become fellow ambassadors. Show hospitality. Hostility puts more emphasis on the brokenness of someone rather than their shared dignity as image bearers of God, people that have been estranged from God. Show hospitality. Finally, engage your neighbors. Honestly, with a big question like this, when we hear this and we realize the question is right, the question hits home, the question hurts my heart, one of the responses is to decide to never to talk. I'm just going to be silent for the rest of my life. I don't want to screw it up. Silence is not the answer. Love your neighbors. Be vulnerable. Be willing to be uncomfortable. Try to proclaim the goodness of the good news. And when you do, and you accidentally do it forcefully, instead of winsomely, apologize and keep being a learning ambassador. Pray for your neighbors. God hears those prayers and answers them with powerful actions. I have seen prayers like that answered. And to throw back to one of our previous questions, that's why I believe miracles actually happen. God does action in this space. God does action in this world. That is good news. Remember, force has to do with power. Love has to do with serving. How then shall we act after this question? What do we do? My prayer is that may it be that no one asks this question of you. No one asks this question of me. May this be a wake-up call where we sober ourselves like Peter says. May it be that your neighbors never question your love. That they never question your allegiance. That they never question that you have indeed been changed by what you call a saving king. But may they never question that you care deeply and unwaveringly for them. That they know, I may disagree with this guy or gal, but they're a changed person that loves their God and their neighbor and me. Do not resolve just to be silent, for that is to ignore the words of Jesus, the King who is coming, the one who has all authority. 
We have to navigate the tension of being faithful but not strident, distinct though flawed and not hypocrites, proclaimers of ultimate truth without a belligerent posture. And if your neighbors see you fall back into an old passion or an old rut of sin, be quick to repent or apologize knowing we can do so without shame because Christ has dealt with the punishment of our sins and is patiently through the Holy Spirit working to put to death the sin we still deal with. That's good news. Share that with your neighbors. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good to us and weaving your character into us little by little. I, I want more of your character in my life. I want to look more like you. I want it to be obvious that I'm gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love like you are. I pray that for my friends. I pray that the character of God would emanate from us and that people would see it and that it would be attractive to them even if they disagree with us. Help us to walk as your children in a way that makes you look good and gives us joy. Jesus, thank you for dying to save us from death and rising again to give us new life. We long for your return as triumphant king and want to proclaim that well. It's good news. Help us to proclaim it as good news. Holy Spirit, thank you for putting to death our sin and help, helping us to partner in that work with you. Empower us to confidently and kindly proclaim good news in a way that shows distinction and matches the method of Jesus, the suffering servant who suffered for us. Amen.